0: Hello and welcome to Law 505, Public Law. I ordinarily start the course with a land acknowledgement. And while I cannot say that we are gathered together, I would like to note that I'm recording this podcast on the traditional, ancestral and unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, the Squamish, the Tsleil-Waututh and the Musqueam nations. Many of you who have spent time in B.C. will have heard that land acknowledgement before, but it, it may be new to some students as well, given the unique format of our course. This land acknowledgement is commonly given at UBC events, and its Point Grey campus is in the heart of Musqueam traditional ancestral territory. It is always helpful to take a moment to dwell upon the meaning of this land acknowledgement, traditional, ancestral, and unseated. Traditional recognizes that Vancouver sits upon lands that were traditionally used and occupied by the Coast Salish people. Ancestral recognizes that these lands were passed down from generation to generation, and Unceded is a recognition that these lands were never turned over to the crown by a treaty or any other agreement. So these words can be a respectful recognition of the First Nations whose traditional territory I live and work upon, but it's also a recognition and reminder of the tension inherent in Canadian public law. The history of Canadian law is predominantly one of imposition rather than collaboration for the First Nations within Canada's territory. So we will learn about public law. And at its most fundamental level, it's the study of the relationship between the state and individuals and the interrelation of different state entities. But we also want to grapple more deeply with what the state is, what its sources of powers are, and how Canada's Aboriginal populations are or are not included within that framework. So I would encourage you to bear in mind throughout your readings and while listening to these lectures, the tension inherent in this class being taught upon unceded traditional territory. And the land acknowledgement is then I hope not something that will simply be said at the outset of the course and, and left, but rather something that should guide and animate our thinking throughout our study. So again though, welcome to Canadian Public Law. I'm Oliver Polyblank. I am teaching this course for the third time. It is my first time though teaching it remotely. I practice law at my own small firm in Vancouver where I focus on public law issues. Administrative law, Aboriginal law, and environmental law are my key areas of focus. Prior to going out um, on my own, I worked for a number of years as a litigator at the Department of Justice in Vancouver for the federal government, where i had the chance to act upon a number of public law cases, a number of constitutional cases. I do recognize that one of the things that is going to be the most difficult about this format is to get to know you. And I do hope to get to know the students and I would encourage you uh, to take the time to, to send me emails with any questions to give me a call with any questions or concerns, and generally to um, not be afraid to reach out to me with, with anything about the course that is troubling you in any way. So before getting into an overview of public law, I will just briefly speak a bit about the course. In terms of the skills that I hope that we can develop together, I hope to achieve a balance of legal analysis and critical legal analysis. That is, on the one hand, I would like you to feel comfortable articulating legal rules and applying them to a set of facts to predict the most likely outcome. But I also don't want to lose the critical component, which doesn't take as a given that legal rules leading to a particular outcome is a given or a set in stone, but rather will engage with the wisdom and fairness of the law. Because ultimately, the law is anything but static. The common law changes, statutes change, interpretation of the Constitution changes. If I taught this course 10 years ago, I would give much less focus to Aboriginal rights and title because that's how I was taught constitutional law. There was two days out of a full year course on Aboriginal rights and title, and it was explicitly made to be not on the exam. Um, I will be dedicating equal time to Aboriginal rights and title, to the time dedicated to the Charter and to the Division of Powers. And this is not just because I find the topic fascinating, and not just because it is an area where there's tremendous development, and not just to try to remedy the past ignoring of the subject in the little way that might be within my power. But this is because this is the most important component of the course for your practice in British Columbia, almost certainly. If you practice law in British Columbia, you may run into a division of powers problem. It's kind of unlikely. You might choose to go into criminal law or you might choose to do charter litigation, but certainly that's not something that most lawyers do. However, at this point, nearly all lawyers have to consider in some way how Aboriginal rights and title may impact the law they're practicing, be it a contract, be it a land deal, be it within a policing framework, be it a taxation issue. It is hard to articulate an area of law where an understanding of Aboriginal rights and title has not become essential. And so the law is changing. The way that we teach the law is changing. And the reason it's changing is because people apply a critical framework to the law and to law school. And so thinking critically about the law is not some extra thing in addition to what's the fundamentals, which is learning the the black letter of the law. It is a fundamental component of learning the law. We are going to be studying in two different ways. The first half of the course is going to be taught primarily out of the casebook, the public law casebook. This is a book that has excerpts from leading cases but also a significant amount of discussion by the authors about the key ideas, and in many ways um, reads like a textbook at times. The second half of the course, though, will focus predominantly not from the casebook, but rather on cases, which I will put up on my website with the parts that I want the class to focus on highlighted. And so, hopefully we'll get a balance through some of the critical frameworks that the case book will help us develop. And then we will also be able to apply those to the specific cases that we read so that we can consider not just what this case stands for, but what values underlie that case and what implications that case may have for a broader understanding of Canadian public law. A reality of this course is that the timing is compressed. We are going to be going through a vast amount of material in a relatively short period. And so therefore, I'm going to modify somewhat the case study method. Um, It is valuable to spend the time reading cases, struggling through them, figuring out what they mean and what lessons you can draw from them and we will do some of that however at the same time we need to move through so much material that we don't have the time to deeply grapple with every single case to discover the ratio as it were so instead I will often um, lead you more directly to the key concepts to take away from the case for our course's purpose. But at the same time, I do not want to lose sight of the degree to which the facts govern the emergence and development of the common law. And we're going to deal with some absolutely fascinating questions that get at fundamental human problems in this course. The breakup of Canada into two countries medical-assisted suicide, assisted human reproduction, hate speech, fundamental human problems. We're also going to deal with some fascinating sets of facts and some issues that may not rise to quite the same level in terms of human importance, but nevertheless give rise to an opportunity to answer fundamental questions about how we live as a society. Lego versus copycat Lego, advertising aimed at children. And when I think about this course and how it's been taught in the past and what's been successful and what's been unsuccessful, one of the things that strikes me as the most successful and one of the most positive outcomes of the compressed framework is that it allows us to see connected uh, concepts in a time frame where we haven't lost sight of the, the first idea. We can take an idea that we learn about in one class And then we'll see it play out not months later, not not sometime next year, but we'll see it days later. By moving quickly, I've found it's often easier to keep the big picture in mind and to draw the connections between different concepts and different areas of public law. Broadly speaking, there are four components to this course. The first component, which we'll start today, is the foundations of canadian law we're going to talk about the canadian legal system at a high level give a bit of history and i won't talk much more on that right now because i'll be getting to that shortly within this lecture we'll also be addressing the constitutional division of powers and i know that many students come from federal systems but many students also come from unitary systems the question of how to balance federal versus provincial powers, what to do in the events of conflict, and the very real consequences for how Canada is governed that are caused by decisions made as to who holds different types of power within the system, tells us fundamental questions about Canada and will occupy the second quarter of our course. We'll then move on to rights. And Canada has a constitutional Bill of Rights. It hasn't had a constitutional Bill of Rights forever. It acquired its constitutional Bill of Rights in 1982. And finally, in the last quarter of the course, we'll talk about Aboriginal rights and title. So I will be going more directly through the readings in a little while. But at the outset, I do want to say some broader, big picture things about public law. So what is public law? Public law, it's been said, concerns those legal institutions and legal arrangements that structure the relationships between the individual and the state and between the constituent parts of the state itself. So think about how does the state interact with the people and how does the state interact with itself? And not to get too esoteric about the law right away, but it's important to think what is public law? Well, what what is the law? And we all might have somewhat different conceptions of what the law is, but I have always found a very good um, framing of the law to come from the American jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes Who described the law as fundamentally a predictive exercise what is going to happen what is the state going to say what is a judge going to say about my conduct if it comes before him or her now a predictive theory of the law has far less certainty than some other theories of the law because if you go to a lawyer and you say to the lawyer hey can you tell me what's going to happen with my case. The only way to make sure you have a bad lawyer is if that lawyer tells you with any certainty what's going to happen. There's always going to be a range of possible outcomes depending on what arguments are marshaled in response by the other side, what particular worldview the judge brings to the case, how different legal authorities are found to interact in your particular factual circumstance, and many components of the law have an element of discretion built right into them. So with public law, we are thinking about how the state interacts with individuals. We are thinking about how how the state interacts with other branches of the state, other state entities. And we are doing so within a framework of recognizing that we'll always have an element of uncertainty to them. And we want to embrace an understanding of that uncertainty, because being able to recognize that the law is not just concerned with how things have been, but it is also concerned with how things ought to be. And if there's a component of this course that feels like an outcome is fundamentally unfair, or unjust, or there's been a overlooking of some compelling interest, I don't want you to take away from this course that, well, that's just the way it is, that's the way it always will be. When things feel unfair in the law, it may take a long time. But my experience is that they usually eventually become a bit less unfair. The project of a lawyer is to contribute to that great project of creating a more just and fair society for all its members. And it is this diversity of membership of Canadian society that is a through line animating all the major topics we're going to talk about in this course. When we think about the division of powers and Canadian federalism, this topic cannot be examined without bearing in mind that at the time of confederation, the framers of the constitution attempted to balance Canada's sizable French and sizable English populations because there were these two. And we will see how the Confederation and the Division of Powers has been understood as a bargain that was struck to guarantee the French population sufficient autonomy to allow their continuation as a unique culture within Canadian society. So, the Division of Powers, perhaps often thought of as the driest component of Canadian public law, is at its heart a question of minority representation within the government. The question of Aboriginal rights and title, of course, naturally also attempts to grapple with different societies living within the Canadian framework. And finally, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms attempts to guarantee rights to all minority populations as against the imposition of democratically elected laws, which might favor a majority group over the interests of any minority population. So to tell the story of the public law institutions that we're going to cover in this course, it is helpful to start with a bit of Canada's colonial history. Originally Eastern Canada was largely known as part of New France. And of course, New France was the basis for there being a civil law system, which is, was established in the colony and which in fact continues today in Quebec. Between 1756 and 1763, there was the Seven Years' War. This was fought between France and Britain, and it concluded with the Treaty of Paris, which had the result that Britain gained much of France's territory in North America. Another key development of 1763 was the issuance of the Royal Proclamation. This was a declaration by the British monarch, King George III, which applied to all of the land that Britain claimed within North America, including what is now part of the United States of America. The proclamation declared that British law would govern the entirety of the new territory. The proclamation is also a key document in the history of aboriginal rights and title in the Canadian legal landscape and we'll come back to it in some detail later on in the course. The imposition of British law on the French residents of what is now Quebec did not meet with much approval and there was in fact great unrest in the 10 years after the royal proclamation was issued and eventually the british parliament passed the quebec act which restored civil law in the predominantly french region of canada so it was the british parliament who decided to allow french law to continue within canada setting the stage for the division of powers which would be delineated in the 1867 constitution act of canada The Constitution Act of Canada of 1867 was an act of the British Parliament, but it set up Canada as a self-governing dominion. It set up a framework where there would be a federal parliament and provincial legislatures. It set up a framework where the head of state would remain the Queen of England. The Constitution Act of 1867 contemplated Canada's court system which as we'll discuss later on today, includes both courts of inherent jurisdiction, superior courts, as well as statutory courts of more limited jurisdiction. It enabled the creation of the Supreme Court of Canada, which is now Canada's court of final appeal. However, for a significant chunk of Canadian history, until 1949, appeals could be brought to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London, who had the final say on Canadian law. So we can think of that history. We have French and English colonies. We have a fight. We have the British winning that fight. We have Britain declaring British law will apply in these colonies. We then have A reconsideration of that position and determination that French law can apply in the French-speaking areas. We then have a constitution which sets out the basic framework of the government. The Constitution originally contemplates four provinces Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Other provinces would soon join Confederation including British Columbia only four years later in 1871. We have a court system that is contemplated, and we have a sharing of power between the federal and provincial legislatures, which again has to be understood within the context of attempting to unite the French and English-speaking populations under a single constitutional framework. Within this constitutional framework, we can see there are four distinct legal systems that operate within Canada. We have a common law system federally and in most provinces which derives from English law. We have a civil law system that codifies private law in Quebec. We have international law which operates in Canada. It binds the government that enters into the treaties on the international stage. And that law is then codified um, by the parliaments or the legislatures to become binding within Canada upon the population. We'll talk more about the reception of treaties and the implementation of treaties in Canada later on in the course. And finally, the, the fourth legal system is so we can think common law, civil law, international law, and Indigenous law. Now, it probably will not come as any surprise that the fourth listed source of law, Indigenous legal systems, is the one that has been overlooked most commonly within Canadian law schools and the study of Canadian law in general uh, over the last 150 years indeed if we look at our book if we look at page two it does list four sources of canadian law common law civil law international law and numerous indigenous customary legal systems but if we move ahead to chapter four of the book sources of canadian law it lists the common and civil law traditions statutory law international law but it does not touch on Indigenous legal systems. Teaching any nuance of Indigenous legal systems, which vary with different Indigenous populations across the country is beyond the scope of this course. But we will discuss the interrelation between Indigenous legal systems and other facets of Canadian public law within this course. So to recap these first and foundational ideas, what, what is public law? It's the study of the law that governs the relationship between the state and the individual, as well as the law that governs the relationship between the constituent elements of the state and as between states. Canadian law, Canadian public law, can't be looked at without a consideration of Canadian history. This has to bear into mind the English and French speaking populations. And this also has to take into account Canada's Aboriginal populations. The key document for setting up the Canadian state as we know it is the Constitution Act 1867. This was an act of the British Parliament, but it created the Canadian Parliament and the provincial legislatures. And we will spend a good portion of the early part of this course studying the Constitution Act 1867 and in so doing, is important to bear in mind not only what interests were represented within that Constitution Act, but also which were left out. So with that brief overview of the course and some key general ideas underlying Canadian public law, I suggest it might be a good time to take a quick break. And what I'm going to try to do is break up these podcast lectures into several different episodes of the podcast to make it a bit more digestible. So I will call that the end of lecture one, podcast one, and we'll be back with lecture one, podcast two, which will cover chapter eight of the readings.